You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, kiss his grits, Mel. It's Jeff McLarge Huge. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Me? With everybody? I don't know how they're doing. I'm fine. It's uh, the beginning of February, so I guess oh. I guess I'm okay as February's go. Well, it's looking forward to Valentine's Day, and or as I like to say, time of year when I look back at misheard song lyrics. <laughs> Wow, what a in the sm- most romantic way. Wow, what a smooth transition, dude. Segway. I do. I- Segway King Jeff uh, McLarge here. I shift like a 1972 Ford Maverick. Yeah, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. All right, so we talked about uh, wrong song lyrics a couple of months ago. Uh, so you got some more for us? What do we got? Well, I, I had one. When, when we were talking about it, I kept thinking about how funny it is when you, you hear the lyric right. Mm-hmm. But there's a word that sounds like another word that if you input this other word, it completely changes the song, and then you can never hear it the way it was intended again. Because oh. you're always going to hear it with this other word in it. I know exactly what you're talking about. What do you got? Okay, so there's a band that uh, you know, most people my age remember named The Pogues, who have their singer, slurry songwriter, Shane McGowan, uh, as their front man. And in uh, the one of their, I think it's their last studio album, they do a song called The Broad Majestic Shannon, written by a guy named Liam Clancy. And in this song, Shane, I'm going to, do this like I'm painting a fence. So I'm going to do the lyrics, then I'm going to sing the lyrics, then I'm going to slur the lyrics, then I'm going to change the lyrics. So you ready? So this is like the last bar of the song. The lyrics say, So I walked as day was dawning, where small birds sang and the leaves were falling, where we once watched the rowboats landing by the broad, majestic Shannon. It's very pretty. Do you not agree? If, if it was any more Irish, it would be drunk. Exactly. Yep. So as we move our way towards that, so I walked as day was dawning, where small birds sang and leaves were falling, where once we watched the rowboats landing by the broad, majestic Shannon. That's kind of how Shane McGowan sort of does it. And then when he does it as the pose, he goes, And leaves were falling, where once watched the rowboats landing by the broad, majestic Shannon. So the key words there are rowboats. Because if you take out rowboats and you insert robots that's a completely different song and you'll never hear that song again i swear to god without hearing robots in that lyric <laughs> the pokes uh, not to insult you or anybody else but the pokes i always put them in a category in this is a band that my girlfriend likes and regardless of which girlfriend it seems every girl that i date always loves the pokes I, i'm not a, i'm not a pokes person yeah, I I like them. I always I always have since yeah. uh, I don't know since college or a little bit before. And I I have this record and I sing along to the song whenever I hear it. And every time I hear it, I hear the goddamn robots. 
I th- and it makes the song wicked funny yeah. for me. I think I mentioned this before. My friend Bob's wife, and I guess, you know, she's my friend too. She destroyed one of my favorite heavy metal songs for me. Uh, the song I Want to Be Somebody by Wasp. Because <laughs> oh, I, I, can't, I can't not hear this anymore because one day she just started singing, I want a pizza party, pizza party too. <laughs> <laughs> and that is one of my favorite songs from that era. I that's definitely my favorite Wasp song. And now every time I hear it, I'm pizza party, pizza party. <laughs> you find yourself just driving into Chuck E. Cheese, like, oh damn it! Yeah. <laughs> they did it to me again, Blackie Lowe. <laughs> All right. So before we get on with the show proper, I do have my award-winning and always very popular trivia question: three thousand five hundred and twenty-two dimples on a golf ball. <laughs> So, you remember the song Funky Cold Medina by Tone Loke? I do. All right. Uh, easily could be in the worst song ever, but anyway, that's not the, the what we're getting on here. Funky Cold Medina was actually the second rap single ever to go platinum. What was the first rap single ever to go platinum? First rap single ever to go platinum. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Ice Ice Baby? That is a solid guess, but you are wrong. Oh, all right. Is it? Was it Parents Just Don't Understand by DJ Jazzy Jeff? You only get one guess. <laughs> no, it was that one, wasn't it? No, MC, it was not. Uh, MC, young MC? No. All right. I will give you the answer at the end of the show. So this is going to be the week beginning, February the 7th, and I believe it is your turn to start. Ah, uh, February the 7th. My favorite February the 7th of the whole year. February 7th, 1974, the strangely named, which I'll explain in a minute, Symbionese Liberation Army claimed responsibility for the kidnapping of heiress Patty Hearst, daughter of Randolph Hearst of Hearst Newspapers. Okay. Patty would go off and become kind of fit. She was only 19. She got snatched from Berkeley, California. In 74 was like the put my fist in the air, if you can see it. Uh, fist in the air, like revolutionary groups were going to change the world, one kidnapping right. at a time. And the Symbionese Liberation Army was... Uh, you can go to Wikipedia and read their, like, it's not a manifesto, but it's sort of a description of what they mean, and it's it's all, like, weird early 1970s social justice gibberish. I don't think yep. it's bad gibberish. It's just confusing. It's, like, people coming together to make one thing out of many things, and we're all facets of the same creative whatever. And it's, like, these people got machine guns, and they're robbing banks. <laughs> so... Anyway, she ended up uh, sort of becoming brainwashed and a member of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Uh-huh. She was sending cassette tapes and stuff out that said that she was being held for ransom and and she was starting to sympathize with the people who took her. And it's sort of where we get a good description of like Stockholm Syndrome and stuff. Yeah, I was and, just about uh, to bring that up, that Stockholm Syndrome for sure. Yeah. They all got arrested <laughs> and they all now- went to jail. Now, how many people were in this Liberation Army? You can count them on two hands and still have enough fingers left over to scratch your nuts. <laughs> so there's like seven or eight of them. There's not a lot. It's not a lot. So, it's, a, it's, like, it's like one good Monopoly round of people. That doesn't really sound like an army at all. Nah, well, I mean, again, it's 1974. So if you get three friends together and you decide to boycott the local football game, you're an army. I mean, I like bands that have more members than that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, you more know? people have been in Yes than were in the Symbionese Liberation. <laughs> they should have had the Menudo Liberation Army. <laughs> at least then they would have had, you know, at least at least a couple of hundred. Yeah, I think I think there should be a threshold before you can call yourself an army. 
Yeah. You know, but whatever. You know, it's it. I don't think they'd get really far making demands by like we are the Symbionese Liberation, almost two quartets. Yeah, the you know? the Symbionese Liberation bunch of dudes. It was super big news because again, Patty Hearst was like, I'm going to use the word American royalty, even though I hate that term. Yeah. Because she was from the Hearst family and their fortune had come early in the century. She was an heiress to hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, ultimately when she shows up on camera in sunglasses and a beret waving around a, you know, Mac 10 or something, you know, and security camera right, footage right, inside right. of a bank, yeah, it's going to be on the news. Harry Reasoner is going to be talking about that at six o'clock. Without waging any kind of like political front, which we stay as far away from as we can True. on this show, I will say. Those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it. Yes, exactly. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> and if um, you can get seven friends together, you too can be an army. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's something um, that's kind of on the same line of those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it. Those who do not see classic movies will think modern movies are good. <laughs> <laughs> Because on February the 8th, 1976, Martin Scorsese's psychological thriller, Taxi Driver, in theaters, yeah, uh, starring Robert De Niro and Jodie Foster. Yep, and Harvey Keitel and... Sybil Shepard, too. Yep, Sybil Shepard and Albert Brooks and Peter Boyle and a whole bunch of people. A whole, yeah, a whole bunch of movies, a whole whole bunch of... of whole bunch of people that were either famous or went on to become very famous. Yeah. The 70s is my favorite period for cinema. 73 to 83 mm-hmm. is an amazing time for cinema and music. Yep. Go on. 70, uh, this is 70s, the 70s is my favorite era of film. It's The Hayes Code, it died out in the late 60s. Yep. The MPAA was sort of just kind of figuring out what it was going to do, kind of. Right. And you had this period, this golden period. You can have a film like Taxi Driver, which followed Mean Streets, which was also an awesome movie yep. by Martin Scorsese. You've got all of these sort of new young maverick filmmakers with a lax environment of regulation, even self-regulation, so that they can really explore things like aspects of the human condition that is difficult to explore in the 60s because of the Hays Code. So, you know, crooked police officers and serial killers and stuff. Those movies that came out in the early 70s, you know, that that's where, you know, that gave us The Exorcist, that gave us, you know, Taxi Driver in the right. mid-70s. Eyes of Laura Mars was another big one like that that, had, you know, was a very dark kind of movie right around the same time, too. But it's not, just, it's not just drama and horror films. Like, comedies were completely... Never been comedies like there were comedies in the 1970s. Like, where you could push the boundaries of what was considered acceptable, like Blazing Saddles, or, you know, my probably my favorite 70s comedy movie, Slapshot, or right. Meatballs, or Used Cars. Like, all of these all of these films that had this, this undercurrent that you just couldn't put into films before that. This ability to, to tell more complicated and way more adult stories with much more adult language and pick pieces of adult uh, anatomy shown on screen. Getting back to the actual movie of Taxi yes, Driver. Sorry. Yeah. Very famous scene in there with Robert De Niro where he's like looking in the mirror and doing the whole, you talking to yep. me, you talking to me, you talking to me. The script at that point actually says, Travis looks into the mirror. Mm-hmm. That's it. The whole you talking to me famous scene was all improvised by Robert De Niro. Right. Later on, uh, a couple of years ago, Robert De Niro showed up 
in another movie that a lot of people think is very similar to Taxi Driver with Joaquin Phoenix there, The Joker, which I thought was an enormous piece of crap. <laughs> I can't I can't speak to it either way because I haven't seen it. It was an angry white guy movie mm-hmm. that they just slapped the Joker mythology onto it very sloppily just to get the whole comic book crowd to go see their crappy movie. Uh, was it like, what's that Michael Douglas movie there, Falling Down? Yeah, kind of like Smash Falling Down and Taxi Driver together. Mm, okay. But yeah, I, I didn't like it. And, and just be, you know what? Maybe I would have liked it a little bit more if they didn't try to make it a comic book movie, but it literally had nothing to do with the Joker. Yeah. And what I liked so much about Taxi Driver is that again is the ending is it's not ambiguous but it's un, it's like weirdly unnecessarily upbeat yeah Ex- like travis bickle learns from this whole experience of being so isolated in the city that he doesn't have to be isolated anymore but he's he's still driving a taxi but he's killed a bunch of people and the girl that Sybil shepherd that he was that he was chasing after for the the middle portion of the film finally comes back kind of into his cab like all of that stuff happens and it's really weird like he rescued Iris and he gets the they do the narration of the note that he gets from her parents returning her home to like Wisconsin or something all of that stuff is really weird at the end of the movie I think we all learned a very important lesson in that movie too that first dates do not bring the girl to a porno theater do not bring the girl to a porno theater that's a bad first date definitely difficult to top that for bad <laughs> first date decisions however I will say, taking a girl to the midnight movie of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, <laughs> it's right up there in dumbness. All right, so moving on to the 9th, February the 9th, what do we got? February 9th, 1964, the first appearance of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. Not only does it draw 73.7 million viewers, and we'll get to that number in a minute, but I'm pretty sure the screams of the girls in the audience are still traveling through space. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you couldn't even hear him play. Uh, it was just nonstop, like terrified, shrill mating screeches of the audience. Yep, uh, my uh, I remember my parents talking about it. My parents, there was like I mentioned this before, there was a double generation uh, skip between us. Yeah. So the Beatles wasn't their bag of dope at all. They were like, oh yeah, freaking long hair. But I remember them talking about watching the Beatles, like what they were babysitting, like one of their friends' kids, and the the kid just really wanted to watch the Beatles. And what were you saying the number of people watching was? That's like it's like two-thirds of the American population is 73 million people in 1964. It's like every single TV in, in North America, 73 million TVs is turned on to Ed Sullivan for that show. But so you got to remember, like at that time, not everybody owned a television right. set. So yeah, like every TV set in America was watching The Beatles on Ed Sullivan. That's cuckoo bananas. Amazing, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yep. And, and like we joke a lot about on this show about about the impact that the Beatles have, but it's, it's, uh, it's undeniable that it's, that's like the first time that there's a cultural phenomenon that's captured the way that it was captured. Hard like, to believe that Paul McCartney hard... would be dead just two years later. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I was going there and you, you beat me to it. <laughs> you beat me to it. Poor Paul. Uh, yeah. So funny. So yes, yeah. uh, Ed Sullivan, put... Ed Sullivan went on for years and years and years. He, uh, he opened uh, the doors for a ton of bands and, the Beatles opened the doors for a ton of bands just by coming and being on the show. Popo Digio is actually an anagram for Paul is dead. <laughs> now, uh, Popo Digio was a cute little mouse that appeared regularly on the Ed Sullivan show. Another cute little mouse that appeared for the first time on 
February the 10th, 1940, was a mouse named Jerry. Uh, the very first Tom and Jerry cartoon called Puss Gets the Boot made its appearance on February the 10th, 1940. I remember my times watching Tom and Jerry was on Channel 6 after school when I was like in elementary and middle school. Because uh-huh. it used to be on from, I think, 3 to 3.30 or 3 to 4. Yep. So that's where you came home from school and decompressed for half an hour, right. watched ultraviolence between cat and mouse, and then went out <laughs> and played with your friends. Yeah. Tom and Jerry is a cartoon that always gets brought up by Generation X, even though it wasn't a Generation X cartoon. It was right. a gr- Greatest Generation cartoon. Right. Uh, originally, anyway. But that always gets brought up by Generation X as... I watched violent cartoons, and, you know, I I grew up just fine. It's like, I only hit my brother with a uh, frying pan twice. Yeah. My brother and I, you know, I mean, love Tom and Jerry, obviously. I remember my brother one time hitting me in the elbow with a frying pan so hard, like my entire hand went numb, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not blaming it on Tom and Jerry. It's just that's how kids are. You know what I mean? Kids beat the crap out of each other. Yes. And cartoons beat the crap out of each other. I'm not going to say one's better than the other or uh, I refuse, no matter how old I get, I refuse to think that society peaked whenever I was a teenager. That's such stupid thinking. Yeah, I agree. There was that one time where I accidentally swallowed a whole ironing board and it was turned into an ironing board (laughs) shape. Do you have a favorite Tom and Jerry moment? Because they already have mine picked out. I haven't watched these cartoons in probably 30 years, so I can't remember. I remember the they did a lot of, like, uh, Tom as, like, the French uh, film star Yves Montand yep. trying to hit on a girl cat, didn't say anything. Um, right. There was a bunch of, like, Count Basie references that were made in that show, too, that were kind of cool. Um, is you is or is, is you ain't my, my baby. baby? Yeah, and I remember that the maid who beat Tom with the broom was based on the, the maid character who was in Gone with the Wind. But like do I don't, know, I don't have a favorite. Do you know what her name was? I could save this for a trivia question. Uh, no. Her name was Mammy Two Shoes. Mammy Two Shoes. My favorite Tommy Jerry moment was they were playing pool. My brother and I both pissed our pants laughing, and we'll still laugh about it to this day. They were playing pool, and Tom gets the bridge. You know what I mean by the bridge yeah. from pool, yeah. right? He gets the the stick like jammed down his throat, and he just like comes up from underneath the table and the bridge part is hanging out of his mouth making him look like Freddie Mercury basically you know with these big buck teeth yeah yeah and he just goes <laughs> like that and my brother and I you know fairly pissed our pants laughing right right uh, they made a movie a, a modern movie of Tom and Jerry came out in 2020 with Chloe Grace Moretz and digital uh, cartoon versions of Tom and Jerry and it was funny. It was fun. I liked it. I, I didn't. I wasn't mad. The only thing that kind of threw me was in the Tom and Jerry cartoons that we watched when we were a kid. Jerry was always kind of like getting the better of Tom. You know, Tom was the antagonist, right. and Jerry was the one that you rooted for. Right. In the Tom and Jerry movie that came out in 2020, Jerry was a little dick. What? Well, I'm going to make this suggestion. Uh, whether it's true or not, I don't know because I don't know anything about the movie or who wrote yeah. it. But my guess is that the people who wrote the movie also grew up on the same sort of one level removed extraction from Tom and Jerry, which was itchy and scratchy in The Simpsons. Yep. The cartoons that were meant to ape Tom and Jerry, but were even more hyper violent uh, and and gruesome. And in those cartoons, 
Itchy Mouse yep. is a jerk and usually kills or tortures poor Scratchy. They, I wonder if they took some of that into their depiction of Jerry Mouse. They very well could have because, like I said, he was like he was he wasn't just a dick to Tom. He was a dick to everybody. Yeah, he's just a dick. You're a dick, Jerry. You're a dick. <laughs> All right, moving on to the 11th. February 11th, 1990, the origin of the Mandela effect happens when Nelson Mandela is released from a South African prison after 22 years incarcerated, or so some people believe. Right. No, he died. I remember he died. <laughs> I'm one of the people that remembers him dying. And then a really? big parade, yeah. It was like carried on MTV, Winnie Mandela, the parade. I remember it, but again, I could be having a false memory. You like that, like that time I was picked up by those lights in the sky and I woke up with my <laughs> pants on backwards five hours later. No, because I remember him being released from prison. Right. That's, you know? that's the Mandela effect is that people have different the, – the memories are different and it's to suggest that there's like a, a shimmer in the fabric between two parallel universes yeah. or more parallel like, universes. Well, I mean like the specials had that song there, Free Nelson Mandela. I mean – the guy was in prison. I remember all well, it's that. Like the, I remember the Bauhaus song. Nelson Mandela's dead. <laughs> <laughs> the internet phenomenon uh, known as the Mandela effect is kind of interesting, though. Those videos are actually kind of fun. We yeah. just talked about the the Sinbad yeah, Shazam did. one a couple of Once back, couple yeah. of weeks, a little while ago. And um, the one that gets me with the Mandela effect is, because I fell for it too, was the the Mr. Rogers theme song. Okay, which one is that? I don't know that one. All right, well, it starts off with, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Right, A beautiful right? day for a neighbor. Won't you be right. mine? Won't but you it be actually mine? doesn't say that. I've got an abattoir in my house. If you come in my house, I'll give you some candy and push you downstairs. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, the lyric is actually, it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. Yeah. Not a beautiful day in the neighborhood. People, whenever you, whenever they oh. start singing, they say yeah, it's a beautiful I, day. I, I, okay, I'll argue that, like, and as we know, yep. song lyrics are the easiest things to transpose mentally. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. <laughs> right, exactly, yes, uh, the robot's landing. So, <laughs> that being the case... I, there are other ones that are more profound, and, and we've got one coming up later in the show, previews of coming attractions. But the ones that I like are like people who definitely remember eating Jiffy peanut butter. Oh, right. There's no, no such thing yeah. as Jiffy peanut butter. No, it's Jiff, yeah. It's Jiff or it's Skippy. Yep. But it's not Jiffy. But I remember Jiffy peanut butter. I don't know why. Right. With a net full of Jello. A, yeah. net, full, <laughs> a net full of Jello. But there's other ones. like Again, there's like the Jiffy peanut butter one. There's... Mm. The Sinbad movie one with Sinbad who was never in the Sinbad movie. There's the Nelson Mandela one. There's um the Berenstain Bears. Was Berenstain the one. Bears, yeah. The way that the Berenstains is spelled and Berenstain Bears. Yeah. No, it's another one too. And I was like, no, is like the Flintstones. Like there's a a, a Mandela effect that says that it's the F L I N stones. I was like. No, it's Flintstones. Like Flint. Yeah, Flint. Flint is a rock. Flint is stone. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, are you an idiot? Did you think it was the Flintstones? That doesn't make any sense. All right. So moving on to February the 12th, 1963. Construction begins on the Gateway to America, or better known as the St. Louis Arch. Oh, 63, huh? I thought it was built way earlier than that. I, I thought for sure that would be like a, you know, one of those like FDR projects to get us out of, uh, to get us out of the depression, yeah. like, you know. 
hey, uh, we've got a million people here in Missouri who are starving. Like, build an arch. Yeah. I see a giant arch. You know, but nope, 63, huh? Yeah, it turns out it's a John F. Kennedy thing, yeah. <laughs> well, we've got everyone else building a rocket. I guess yeah. you guys can build an arch. we got to put a man on the moon. It's like, uh, how about this thing that doesn't look like it should be able to stand up straight? <laughs> <laughs> we do not do this because it is easy. We do this because it is hard. Also, yep. that arch is kind of cool. You ever see it? No. I've never I haven't been to St. Louis. Oh, I have been to St. Louis a number of times. I've seen the arch at least 5 times. Like do they light it differently each it's, time you go or is it just like It's it's archy. Um arch <laughs> archy. Look kids, big bed parliament. You know? Yeah, uh, unfortunately the three years in a row that I went there, and then I actually went twice in one year, because I got nothing better to do, apparently. Uh, no, we used to go out to St. Louis for a trade show every year, mm-hmm. and so I would go out there and, you know, well, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not working the trade show, so I would go down and see the arch every time. And so, you got anything fun to do in this here city? <laughs> we got a big arch. Yeah. Oh, yeah? That was like, well, during the day, yes. During the night, Oh, you're on your own. St. Louis could be a really, really tough city. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, the Arch, all the time that I was down there visiting uh, for the three years in a row, was under some sort of construction, so we couldn't go up in it. Ah. So, And then by the time they got it fixed and it became a tourist attraction and you could go up in it again, I had stopped going out to St. Louis to the... the the trade shows, but maybe this year I'm going back. So if I go back, I'm going up there. God damn it, I'm going up and seeing that thing. There you go. Yep. Well, it's good to have goals. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty cool. I mean, it's a cool thing to see. It's It doesn't look right. It's very tall, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the base going from, like, left to right is really narrow compared to how tall it is. Right. So it doesn't really look like it should be up like that, you know? It's 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 cool looking. It's fun to imagine that that's the sort of thing that Kennedy would have built, like just to see if the Russians would try and build something bigger and dumber. <laughs> we would put giant trapezoid in the middle of Kerensky Square. You know, <laughs> you have Saint Louis Arch. We have Saint Petersburg Dodecahedron. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so wrapping up the week with February the thirteenth. What do you got? Remember that conversation we just had about the Mandela effect? Or maybe you don't because we didn't have it in this dimension. But uh, uh, No, we didn't do that on the 11th. We did something else. <laughs> uh, on February 13th of 1935, a guy named Bruno Hauptmann is found guilty of kidnapping and murdering the Lindbergh baby. Now, Bill, you may be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Nelson Mandela? Well, this is another Free Mandela effect. the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> <laughs> Nelson Mandela's dead. Uh, so one of the other examples that comes up when people tend to discuss the Mandela effect is the Lindbergh baby. I'm one of the people who I pass a lie detector test, I think, uh, if I was asked what I knew about the Lindbergh baby until very recently, which was that the baby was kidnapped. They put up a huge rent, you know, a huge reward for return of the baby, but the baby was never found. Yeah. I remember that. I remember reading that in history books and learning that as a kid. But that's not the case. The Lindbergh baby was found three days after it disappeared, and it was found dead. And they caught the guy that took it, and they hung him. I have both memories. How's that? I remember it's... the Lindbergh baby was, like, never found, but I also remember that it died. But it was only three days later when they found it? Yep. An example of, of this is, like, 
there are places where there's if the common knowledge is that the Lindbergh baby was found three days later and it was dead and they found Bruno Hotman and they put him on trial and they found him guilty and they hanged him. There's a joke in The Simpsons where Grandpa Simpson, when he's being asked by, I think it's like the FBI. Yep. All right, I admit it. I am the Lindbergh baby. Wah, wah, goo goo. I miss my fly fly, da da. It doesn't make any sense if everybody knows that the Lindbergh baby was found three days later dead. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you animate that? Why would you write that in? Like, that doesn't right, make right, any right, sense. Right. Yeah. It's a joke that has literally no audience. Except but, it uh, does. Except for people <laughs> like me who are like, that's right. You never found the goddamn Lindbergh baby. And what's, like, double hilarious about that is it shouldn't be called the Mandela effect. It should be called the Lindbergh effect because the right. Lindbergh baby was, like, 50 years earlier, you know? Right. So maybe at one time it was, you know, I have a memory of it being called the Lindbergh effect. Now it's called the Mandela effect. <laughs> there you go. Just, we'll change it up. It's, yeah. it's a really weird and, and sort of messed up phenomena. And it's really interesting and fun to think about, like, the implications of it. If parallel universe theory is is a real thing, then there is one universe where the Lindbergh baby was never found. There was the universe where I definitely watched Nelson Mandela's funeral on MTV. I was eating a Jiffy peanut butter sandwich. Right, right, right. With a net full yeah. of jello. <laughs> and hanging out with Sinbad. <laughs> and the Shazam movie. Right, right, right. Right. And, uh, and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. This week's episode of Twibbly is brought to you by Necessary Chances by Norman Duchesneau and published through Austin McCauley. Necessary Chances is a collection of 50-plus stories of actual events told exactly how they happened to the author. The stories span from more than 30 years in the field of law enforcement. As often as possible, the stories are told in a humorous manner because, well, we all deserve a laugh, don't we? The author hopes that this book might inspire one good man or woman to take up the shield someday. In today's world of miscommunication and misunderstanding, the author hopes that somehow, somewhere, a dialogue might open that wasn't there before. Necessary Chances has received 5 out of 5 star reviews on Amazon and Austin McCulley. Once again, thank you to Necessary Chances for sponsoring this week's episode. Available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and through Austin McCulley Publishing. Links will be in the show notes. All right, let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. February the 7th, 1966, American comedian Chris Rock. The <laughs> first time I, I remember seeing him was in the movie I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, and he, he stole the scene that he was in. Where oh, he, yeah. he went in to buy ribs from Isaac Hayes, and he said, oh, how much, for, how much, how much right. from an order of ribs? And he's like, order of ribs is $2.50. He goes, that's 25 cents a rib. <laughs> yeah. He says, so give me one rib. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that was the funniest thing. And then he went on and he did some drama, too. He was in um, New Jack City. Yep. Had the TV show Everybody Hates Chris. That was very funny. Yep. Yep. And uh, has been in and out of stuff. He's he's currently the f- star of the, I don't want to say it's a reboot because it's not, but the Saw franchise. Yeah, the latest movie in the Saw franchise, Spiral. Yeah, he was the male lead in that movie, right? He's actually one of my favorite parts in one of my favorite Kevin Smith movies, too. He played Rufus. Oh, that's right. The the Angel in in Dogma, yeah. Yep. So happy birthday, Chris Rock. Happy birthday, Chris Rock. February 8th, 1932, John Williams, the composer of Star Wars. Oh, yeah. The soundtrack to, I don't want to say this, the score, but known primarily for the score for Star Wars. Also the score for Superman the movie. Jaws. um, Jaws. And a ton of other Hollywood stuff. Big, big Hollywood stuff. Am I right in saying Close Encounters of the Third Kind? 
Uh, nope, but E.T. the Extraterrestrial and Indiana okay. Jones. I knew there was a flying saucer in there somewhere. There yeah. is a flying saucer in there, yes. Yeah. So Phil Kicken very recently was conducting or was recognized at the Boston Pops here in in New England. So yeah. Whenever people would like crap on the Star Wars prequels, the ones from the 90s and the early 2000s, I, I always go, you can crap all you want, but man, Duel of Fates is a badass song. That's a uh, John Williams uh, composition there with all the the choir singers there. Whenever, da, Ob- da, yeah, whenever Obi Wan, Qui Gon, and Darth Maul are fighting, yeah, the Duel of Fates that is a freaking killer. All right, moving on to February the 9th, nineteen oh nine. Brazilian-born actress Carmen Miranda. Oh, yeah, hey, also fruit hat enthusiast. Yes, put that up. Uh, you know, vaudeville era actress and comedian. You know, in early early motion pictures, best known for wearing a headdress with a bowl of fruit on it. At one time, she was actually the highest paid female actress in Hollywood. Wow. You know, for those of us who weren't watching old 1930s era black and white films where Carmen Miranda might have been seen, she was a fixture in a lot of the Warner Brothers cartoons in one form or another. Um, and that was my introduction to her. So another introduction on uh, to Carmen Miranda and here's a funny story. Klinger from MASH always used to dress up as a woman, you know, to try to get out of the army. There was one episode in particular where he dressed up as all famous actresses of the silver screen. And one of them was Carmen Miranda. Ah. So I worked at this haunted house and we used to have a lot of celebrity guests. And who was happened to be there that year? Not Carmen Miranda. She's long gone. But Jamie Farr, the actor that played Max Klinger. So we came up with this idea that everybody in the haunt, the haunt that I worked in would dress up as different versions of Klinger. So somebody was dressed up as Cleopatra, somebody was a nurse, somebody was the Statue of Liberty. They come up to me and they said, hey, do you want to be Carmen Miranda? I was like, boy, did you pick the right person? I freaking <laughs> love Carmen Miranda. So I chick-chick-a-boomed all night long at the haunted house, scaring the hell out of people, dressed up as Carmen Miranda, and I have this amazing picture of me in full drag shaking hands with uh, Jamie Farr. It was oh, fantastic, that's cool. yeah. That's oh, very yeah. cool. He loved it. He loved it. He said that I had more guts than he ever had. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. All right, next up. February 10th, uh, 1997, American actress Chloe Grace Moretz, uh, best known right now for being in uh, Kick-Ass and Kick-Ass 2, and also very recently starred in the Tom and Jerry live-action slash animation slash remake. Yep, I watched that. I watched that last year. I liked it, and I I think we mentioned that Jerry was a dick. Yes. Yep. Her career kind of like it, it took a hit, not not because of anything she did, but because she was in a film that was Love You, Daddy, which was written, directed by Louis C.K. right before allegations of of him sort of exposing himself to female comedians came out and kind of derailed his career. So that film got d- dead hold. It's it's done. It's yeah, not coming I, out. Yeah, I don't think it ever got released. But yeah, Chloe Grace, uh, I mean, it's hopefully a, a big career in front of her. She's very young. She's very talented. Let's cross our fingers for her. Ah. Moving on to the 11th, February the 11th, 1936, mustache and chest hair enthusiast, Burt Reynolds. And also, you may know him by the name Turd Ferguson. Yeah, it's a funny name. It's funny a funny name. name. Funny yep. name, yeah. <laughs> uh, Burt Reynolds, my introduction to him was probably Smokey and the Bandit, but really, I became a huge fan of him because of the Cannonball Run. 
My introduction to him for real was an awful movie called Stroker Ace. Oh, jeez. Yeah, directed by the same guy that directed all the Cannonball Run movies and uh-huh. a bunch of other just utter garbage. You is got that him. the one with Dolly Parton? Yep. It is. Okay. Uh, Ned Beatty and Pat Pringle and a bunch of others. Anyway, um, yeah, that was my introduction to him, and I was like, well, this guy's funny, but this movie is stupid. And yeah. I wasn't wrong. And uh, and then I saw that he was he did some dramatic stuff. He was in Deliverance, which was very good. Yeah, and yeah. Then, and so was Ned Beatty. And so was Ned Beatty, yes. His career, he sort of ended up doing like these more light comedy things. But every now and then he would do like an action movie. He did Sharky's Machine, which is a crime cop movie, which is really good. Yeah. And he did this really weird film called Heat that I saw in the movies. This is like in 1987. Uh-huh. And in it, he plays like a like a guy in Vegas who's like a not a private detective, but somebody who helps people for money. And he has like a, a, a code of ethics. He like protects prostitutes and stuff. And he doesn't use guns and he won't kill people. And he goes to, re- to help this woman who's been assaulted by like a mob boss's kid. And it was like a per- absolutely, utterly forgettable movie. I think Holly Hunter is also in it. That might be her first film. That's how forgettable this movie is. How would you compare it to? How would you compare it to Cop and a Half? It's, it's <laughs> it is. It's better than Cop and a Half, but not by much. It's like two okay. stars better. All right, moving on to the twelfth, February twelfth, nineteen seventy. Comic writer Judd Winnick. Uh, you may not realize that you know him from if if you watch the Real World Two. He was one of the cast of that show. Uh, he was. Ironically which, enough, which he was, was Judd. I know him because he wrote Captain Marvel uh, or S- Superman Shazam First Thunder, which is a graphic novel. Oh. And I was like, hey, it's a Judd Winnick novel. And I knew who he was. He also wrote for a long time on Justice Society of America. And he took over the Power Girl series when I was in the process of collecting the Power Girl comics. Oh, Pretty good oh. writer. When paired with a good artist, his stories are, are definitely uh, the above average. And Real World 2 was one of the better seasons. That's the one with Dominic. And wrapping up the birthdays, the easiest birthday for any uh, punk rocker worth their salt to remember, February 13th, 1961, or 2 Henry Rollins. Uh, a, a renaissance man, if there ever was one. Author, actor, musician, poet, spoken word performer. Sort of social philosopher, narrator, yeah. On, yeah, on and on and on and on and on. The guy has done just about everything. Started out... Uh, working at a haagen and then I, uh, ultimately at a pet store. Was a huge fan of the punk band Black Flag. Fanboyed all up and down uh, their shows. Befriended them, and then they asked him, would you like to audition for the band? And then the rest is punk rock history. Yep. Put out a couple of fantastic solo records like The End of Silence and a bunch of good spoken word albums for sure. Yep, the end of silence is uh, that's that's a must own. That's a must own album for for the '90s. And uh, I I've been to see him do the spoken word thing probably about a half dozen times. Always, always very super entertaining. I uh, I actually feel bad for the guy because it seems like so here he is. He's 61 years old and like, has this guy ever been happy a day in his life? I I just wonder. You know, he just seems to always be you know very serious and very stoic. I mean, I've seen him smile here and there, but. Not much. I watched a couple of videos of him recently where he was sort of explaining how to take care of vinyl records, which is a passion of his, which I thought was very cool. I also watched him eat a ton of hot wings on that. Oh, really? He was on that show? Yeah. That was really fun to watch. Let's not forget watching him just destroy the Chevy Chase show. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I remember whenever he like, I don't want to say broke big, but but whenever the record company was trying to push him and they had the song Liar. 
and he actually performed at the Grammys, and he came out and he performed in a tuxedo with no shoes. He had bare feet. Right. The woman at work was like, you like that Henry Rollins guy, don't you? I was like, yeah. And then she was telling me, she's like, I've never heard music like that before. I was like, yeah, well, of course you haven't because you're too busy listening to the worst song ever. All right, so this week's worst song ever. This is a story of bait and switch once again for me. Um, this week's worst song ever is Runaway Train by Soul <laughs> Asylum. Oh, from the Where Are They Now file. They're actually still touring. They're going to be playing like up here, I don't know, in the next month or two. Oh, um, they, they played uh, The Feast down here in New Bedford a couple of years sounds, ago. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah, so Soul Asylum was one of those early 90 bands, even though they got their start in like the early 80s. Yeah, 81. Yeah, they put out a bunch of albums before the album that really broke them famous, Grave Diggers Union. Now, here's what I'm talking about, about Bait and Switch. MTV used to have this show called 120 Minutes, remember that? Yes, yep, I do. That was their alternative college music show. Yes, it was the college music show before alternative was a term that they used in music. They put out a couple of compilation albums called Nevermind the Mainstream, and it was the 120 Minutes, right? Right, yep. And the second track on the first compilation was a song called Sometime to Return by Mm -hmm. Soul Asylum. And that song is a banger. As a matter of fact, I used the vocal pattern for that song to write one of the songs that became a song for my band, Too Many Gents. Um, I oh, used the vocal pattern to write down the lyrics. Yeah, I really liked the song. I liked the vocal pattern. It was a great song. Did you sing it in an incredibly earnest manner? I did not, and I managed to comb <laughs> my hair once in a while, too. We'll get to that. <laughs> that was on an album called Hang Time that came out in 1988. Another, A couple of years later, they came out with another album called The Horse You Rode In On, which I have never heard, but you told me you listened to it today. And, and that's the that's actually the record that I was introduced to Soul Asylum through when I was a DJ on oh, okay. Cape. Yep. So that record came through, and and I remember the first three or four songs on it were they're good yep. radio songs. They're three you know three minutes and thirty seconds, and jangly guitar and earnest vocals and Dave Perner's sort of voice that kind of went along with the music, and it was good. They're good songs. Yep. Are they memorable? Eh, not really. They sound like a melange of, of bands desperately trying not to be hair bands, but could very easily have been hair bands. Yes, that's so, something I said. Uh, I'll, get, I'll get to that in a second. So they come out with the Grave Diggers Union album, and the song Runaway Train that we're going to be talking about here was actually the third single. Yep. First single was a song called Someone to Shove. That's a good song. I like that yep. song. It's right around the same tempo as... That sometime to return song. I was like, oh man, this is gonna be a band I'm gonna like. And I got that album. That was the last song on the album that I thought was any good. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the next song on the album was the next single called Black Gold. And then this song, Runaway yes. Train. Seems like I should be getting 
This is probably the greatest magic trick in music ever pulled off. Because this song isn't good. This song sucks, in fact. I'm not going to argue. So continue. <laughs> yes. No, no. All I'm right. waiting. So, you're, right. you're, you're, I want to know what the magic trick is. The magic trick is the music video that was released along with this song showed a bunch of like runaway kids that would show their picture and then they would show their name, where they were last seen and how long it's been since they were last seen and their current age right. or whatever. Brought a lot of awareness to runaway and exploited uh, teenagers. And right. it was an incredibly popular video. The only yep. problem is the runaway in this runaway train song has nothing to do with runaway children. Yeah, it was definitely it, it, a high concept it, video. But it has nothing to do with runaway children, the song. And it's like right. everybody got pulled in because it was such a popular video. Hey, did you see that video with all the runaway kids? Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Hey, did you listen to the song? Apparently not because the song is shit. <laughs> Well, ultimately, it becomes like the soundtrack to a public service announcement. And that's yes, really what happens. We've talked about this before. Like the medium becomes the message, right? Visuals sometimes are more important than the whatever the visuals are attached to. And this right. is an example of that. I went back and I watched a couple of different versions of the Runaway Train video in advance of recording today's show. Yep. I even watched where Dave Perner finishes the video and he's like, if you are one of the children in this video, contact this number. Right. He just says that at the end, like he's staring out at the camera. And then they, they clipped that off of MTV. And then in different countries, they put in different kids because it wouldn't make any sense if you were like watching it on Australian MTV. And it's like John Smith, last seen in Seattle, Washington. Like, who the <laughs> fuck is that? Oh, oh, I think I see a kangaroo in my yard. You know, um, and that's like, that's not going to help. So they put a bunch of Australian kids in the Australian one and a bunch of British kids in the British one, etc. Put a bunch of missing kangaroos in the Australian one. <laughs> oh, crikey. But, uh, I haven't seen Humper since 1984. The the video has like three things going on. There's the I, band playing in a like a closet <laughs> in sepia tone, and you can see Dave Perner's hair, which looks like it makes me wish that somebody like from Vidal Sassoon in a black leotard would just drop from the ceiling and start to massage soap into his hair because it's like nasty white boy dreads. Yeah, he always looked like he just like rolled out of bed. Yeah, like he had that get up and go look. I guess you could say. Yeah, get up and go take a shower. Yeah, <laughs> that video, the the sapia tone, the part the, yeah. with with the band yeah. in it, that video smells like weed so bad. It's, it's, it's weed and dust. Yeah, weed and yeah. It's, my and, mother uh, comes into my room. Are you smoking weed in here? No, mom. I'm watching the Soul Asylum video. Um, oh, that explains everything. The, the other part of the video is the aforementioned. Pictures of missing kids who are put on the screen for about five seconds each with their yep. name and stats and stuff. And it's very evocative. And then there's another bit in there, which is friggin' horrifying. And it's <laughs> like three, it's like three, again, nothing to do with the song. Barely has anything to do with the missing kids part. It's like a horror movie. So it starts out like there's an old man who strangles his wife to death in front of their grandkids. And the kid's like, ah! And goes running out of the house in slow motion because it's early 1990s and everything is in slow motion. And then it, you go through the band part and you go through the f missing kids part. And then it's a girl like who's clearly under 12 who's a prostitute with a bunch of old haggy prostitutes. Right. 
And the same like murderous grandpa guy pulls up and he's like, got a big smile on his face like, I eat children. <laughs> <laughs> and he picks her up and then the next time you see her, she's dead. And they're putting her in a in a like a, a morgue truck. Interspersed with this, there's a woman who's driving a, an older woman who's driving a car and is watching this lady push her baby in a baby carriage. At the end of the video, that woman leaves her baby outside, don't know why, and goes into a store to look at jewelry, and this lady runs out and steals the baby and takes off. I, it's like, at the end of that video, I'm just going to be like in the corner in the fetal position, tucking on my earlobe. Just <laughs> <laughs> like, like what am, what am I supposed to take away from this? Right. Like, this is way too much sand for my little truck. It sucks. And- <laughs> the thing that really bugged me about this song, more so than anything else, is the lyrics. Mm-hmm. The lyrics just sounds like Dave Perner, the you know the singer and the only guy that's been in the band you know since the beginning and still in the band. Yeah, true. Um, it sounds like he's just like flipping through a book of cliches because it's just like one after another after another after another. Runaway train never coming back. Wrong way down a one way track over and over and over and over. You know, just cliche after another. Just like you know, two wrongs never make a right. A wet duck never flies at night. <laughs> Give, come on. <laughs> you could just take cliches and just do them in Dave Perner's voice and they all sound like Runaway Train. Oh, yeah. You know. Every go, cloud has a silver lining. Don't cry over spilled milk. I Like, I feel bad making fun of the guy. He's still, he's still touring, like, and still putting out stuff and... And Still looking for missing kids, I'm sure. And <laughs> you know what's funny though is like you go back to like the, I looked up an article about like kind of like we mentioned the where are they now file from here and every now and again, and I was like, oh, what? Are, they must have found some of them, right? There was like 34 missing kids, and I think they found like 19 of 20, them. Yeah, and a lot of them weren't happy about being found. You know, yeah. the pretty and sexy version of runaway kids is that they went to like join a circus or something like that but usually right. they're running away from something not to something it's like yeah and it's not murderous grandparents it's generally like yeah. you know a difficult home where there's like substance misuse disorder or there's other kinds of emotional or physical abuse and it's and and when they go they're not like going to hollywood axel rose style to try and find <laughs> a band to join they're going to stay with like a, a person's family that they know that, that is protecting them a little bit right. i know that one of the stories that one of the girls said was like yeah thanks a lot you know the police came and got me at my boyfriend's house and brought me back home to a place where i was being abused like Runaway train, never coming back. <laughs> the worst thing, right, was the next album that came out. I, I was still holding out hope because that Sometime to Return song was good. I was like, I was like Luke Skywalker bitching about Darth Vader. There's still good in him. I can feel it. I was convinced that Soul Island could still be a good band. So the next album comes out. The first single is called Misery. First line in the song. They say misery loves company. It's like, come on! <laughs> Even more cliches, yeah. yes. More cliches, yeah. part two. And you know more this cliches. Runaway Trey song won the Grammy for Song of the Year? Of the Year, yeah, 1994. I'm telling you, if this song did not have that video, it never would have went anywhere. I don't think so. Yeah, anyway. it, it wouldn't have charted for sure. And and I, I'm surprised it didn't lead to other bands, although there are some, other bands doing like public service announcement videos, like, you know, from the time period. So it's like, yeah. what, it's like 1991, figure like EMF. Is doing <laughs> does unbelievable, but it's a public service announcement for like not stiffing the cab driver that takes you to the store. 
And now I'm looking at Soul Asylum's Spotify over here. And, you know, it gives you their top five songs, right? Number one, Runaway Train. Runaway Train. With 176 million listens. Right. Next song. Well, I had at least four of those, so yeah, yeah. you can subtract four. Okay. Next song down, Somebody to Shove, 8 million listens. A hell of a drop-off, yeah. right? Then it's Black Gold. Like I said, the first three songs on the album. Then it's that freaking Misery song. Right. And then the number five song is Runaway Train, live. <laughs> some of their stuff got used. I guess Kevin Smith's a fan of theirs and used stuff in some of their stuff in his yeah, they have a, Clerks they have a and song Chasing on, Amy. Yeah, they have a song on the Clerks soundtrack, and they have a song on... They actually use Misery and Clerks, too. Yeah. All right, that's going to wrap up the show for the week, but I do still have my award-winning and always well-received trivia question for you. The trivia question was, what was the first rap single to go platinum? I don't know. I mean, I... It's not Young MC if it's not Young MC if it's not Vanilla Ice if it's not DJ Jazzy Jeff and the front is it Kid and Play? Nope. Is it Ola Ola? Eh? No. Is it... No. Those are all good guesses. But can I keep can I keep guessing until I get <laughs> until it? I guess every rap single ever. <laughs> was it Supersonic it, by it, JJ Fad? No, it was it, not. Is it, is it is it White Lines? No. no. Uh, all right, listen. Tone Loke's Funky Cold Medina was the second song to go platinum. The first song to go the first rap single to go platinum was. Wild Thing by uh, Oh my God, Tolo. by Tone Loke. Uh, yep. You threw me off. The first, you threw me off a cliff. Yep. You threw me. The off. first yeah. two rap singles to go platinum were both by Tone Loke, never to be seen again. Yeah, he still he he does like the tour. Like he tours with like I don't know if Young MC still alive. <laughs> he might have died. It's not he, young. They, That's they, what there was. Uh, there was a whole like there was a whole tour was like Tone Loke, Young MC. It takes two to make the thing go right. I forget who they were, and a, they come out and play one song. Yeah, yeah, the, and, the State and, Fair and, tour. Or two, yeah. The two songs. Yeah, the State Fair. But it would be like they come to like the Verizon Arena here in in New Hampshire and be like, it's the everybody from FM Radio in the '80s tour doing their two top songs, maybe only one of those, yep. and then and there's JJ Fad doing Supersonic and right whoever the hell saying I got a crush on you. Right. Yes, exactly. It's new shoes with the from that other. Yes. All right. But that's going to wrap up the week. We will see you back here in approximately seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or TWWBLY. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. Twibley is approved by Emperor Norton, protector of Mexico and friend to Canada.